0: Welcome to The Fabulous 413, I'm Khalees Smith.
1: And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll talk to some of the folks behind Florence-based, self-evident education's Power of Truths, Cinematic Chronicles of Racism and Resistance. There's a screening in Northampton tomorrow night. Plus, Pizza Quest returns as we review
0: Berkshire Mountain Pizza Cafe and Bakery in Pittsfield, such a long name, at, while on the hunt for the best pizza in the 413.
2: But first... And you didn't earlier. write down any puns, right? No. <laughs> uh.
0: They won't happen naturally, so if you were looking for a little bit of that action, I'm going to disappoint you so badly. This Uh. is the Monty relief. As soothing as the honey, we will be tasting later. Welcome to another Local Hero Spotlight here with Sisa, the by local folks. Today, we're speaking with Dick Connor of Red Barn Honey Company in Northampton. Now, full disclosure, I used to buy this honey all the time at the market down the street from my house so I could pick it up on my way (laughs) back home from work. What's bee life like in the winter? Oh, be life- For like all of us who have forgotten- In the <laughs> winter, okay. Well, honey bees are
3: pretty quiet in the winter. There's not much activity in the hive. Well, not much that you can see. The bees, uh, some people refer to it as hibernating. I'm not a biologist, but it's not technically hibernating. The bees go into kind of a state of torpor and they form a cluster. So they share their body heat and the bees produce heat by vibrating their wing muscles. Okay. So, they're, they're using honey, which is a carbohydrate, so that's kind of like their fuel source. Think of that as their fuel source for the winter to keep the colony warm. So honeybees consume honey, vibrate their wing muscles, produce uh, heat and in that cluster, and the bees kind of rotate. So the ones in the outside of the cluster gradually move to the center, and the ones in the middle who are warmer move back out.
0: So yeah, that's what they do to make it through the winter. So if the bees need honey in the winter to, or fuel, is there a time that you stop taking the honey from the hives?
3: Yeah, sure. So it's important for beekeepers to who are harvesting honey to make sure that they leave enough for the bees at the end of the season. Our last harvest is in October. It's the last time we process honey. We're taking that honey off end of September, early October. And we'll check to make sure that the bees, uh, the colony is heavy enough, that the bees have enough honey to survive through the winter. If they don't, then we'll do some supplemental feeding. We'll feed them sugar syrup so that um, it's not too thin, so there's not adding too much moisture to the hive and the bees will store that in the comb in, as a substitute for honey. There are various times throughout the season when beekeepers might feed bees. Mm. If you're feeding in the spring for a colony expansion and there's not much nectar available for them yet, you'll feed a thinner syrup. It's a one-to-one sugar syrup. In the fall, we, we feed a two-to-one syrup.
2: So w- one great thing about local honey is that you actually have your beehives on farms huh. in the local area. So, how does that work in the winter? Since we're focusing on that, do you recollect the beehives, or do they stay out in the field? No, we leave
3: the bees where they are in the field. Um, we we do move bees around a little bit in the summertime. We have done some pollination in the valley for farmers that are growing crops that rely on pollinators, so we'll move the bees for that purpose, then move them back to the bee yards where we keep them. But the locations where we have bees right now, we have bees in nine locations up and down the valley from Montague to Granby and in between. We add some insulation to the hives to give them a little bit of uh, added R value uh, to stay warm in the winter, so we put a piece of insulation up on top of the hive underneath the outer cover.
0: Did those farmers contact you about bringing bees onto the farm and keeping them there, or was it the other way around? It's
3: mostly the other way around. In some cases, there's some mutual benefit for the farmers depending on what they're growing. We have bees at Park Hill Orchard in East Hampton, for example, and they're a fruit farm, obviously, so most of what they grow relies on pollinators. So if they did not have me keeping bees there, chances are they would be hiring in Uh, beekeepers to to hiring in hives, essentially renting hives for pollination during the bloom period. But we keep bees there and we leave them there year round. And they're, by the way, great collaborators. They sell our honey at their farm stand through the season.
2: So I have to hear your origin story of how you ended up being a beekeeper.
3: Ah Well, I've always been interested in nature and the outdoors. And a friend of mine, gosh, let's see, it's probably 18 or 20 years ago now, who was keeping bees introduced me to it. And I said, oh, that's really cool. I should try that. I'd like to try keeping bees as a hobby. So I started a colony in our backyard. We live kind of close to downtown Northampton, so we really don't have much space. But you don't need a lot of space if you only have one or two hives. So I did it as a hobby for a number of years. And then about 13 years ago, um, decided to make a life career change and sort of stepped out of the work that i was doing and um, decided to build this into a sideline business while i was caring for my kids.
0: Are you keeping bees at your place in Northampton, too? Do you keep that honey separate from the stuff you're getting from orchards?
3: No, I don't have any bees (laughs) at our home right now. All my bees are on what beekeepers refer to as outyards, so they're out away from the farm. We rent some shop space in Northampton where we process our honey. And I guess I would say to you that and to the audience that the plants that bees prefer to collect nectar from are pretty consistent throughout the area, and for that matter, New England and the Northeast. Mm. Bees are much more particular about the types of plants that they gather
0: nectar and pollen from than people realize. What's the hardest thing about keeping bee populations healthy? Well, and is it
2: harder than keeping children healthy?
0: <laughs> or, you know, other pets? I keep thinking of bees as like one puppy that has, you know, like 5,000 parts and yeah, you can't well, pet very I guess easily. The answer
3: could apply to both bees and children. I don't know whether benign neglect is better than all the management that we try to do. Now, in, in all seriousness, uh, the health issue of honeybees is multifactorial. It's it's a fairly complicated issue. One of the big central issues, however, is a parasitic mite that infests honeybee colonies. It jumped from another species of bee, the what's referred to as Asian honeybee, to the European honeybee. And its former host tolerates the mites pretty well, but the Euro- European honeybees do not. Um, so that's the, the central issue in terms of health. It's not the only issue, but it's the central issue in terms of keeping your honeybee colonies healthy and alive. So So beekeepers really need to monitor their mite levels in their colonies. And if they get too high, do something about it in terms of some sort of treatment to knock the the mites back down or else the colony will eventually succumb from them. You you mentioned the word terroir and what honey is like in terms of color and taste, and I brought some samples here with me. Yay, if samples! You want to try them here in the studio. Yes.
0: Oh, you brought honeycomb too.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's a, well, I, I we're not gonna saw, crack I it open. Feel, but... It's um, yeah, it's kind of silly to bring a a visual prop no, to a radio interview, th- but it gives you something can to take off on. People can imagine
0: most of what honeycomb looks like, but what are some of the benefits of getting and using the whole honeycomb?
3: Honey that's in a comb, referred to as comb honey, well, it's, uh, it's the least processed form of honey that you can consume, unless, of course, you're keeping your own honeybee colony and you're opening it up and, you know, taking out a piece of comb or sticking your finger in there and tasting the honey. This is the least processed form of honey that you could... Purchase or to or to taste, mm. so it's still in the comb where the honeybees stored it. The Waxy surface uh, that you can see is a wax capping. We've referred to as a capping that covers the cells filled with honey. The, when the bees know that the moisture content is at the right level, they cap it off. So that's the way they store it. Yeah, it's not it's not as versatile a project, product as liquid honey because it's obviously still in the comb. So if you put that in your tea, you're going to have melted wax floating around. And, uh, but then you uh, could light it. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. Yeah, light your tea, flaming tea. Um, so I like to eat it, spreading it an English muffin or a toast or something like that, and then the wax kind of blends in with the bread that you're eating, it's, it's you know, it's, it's the wax kind of sticks in your teeth a little bit, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's a it's a really kind of a neat product, I think. So so
2: we're in this cold season, right, where it's like raining out or almost snowing, whatever, and I know that a lot of people um, really gravitate to honey in terms of yeah. the winter season and gift-giving, but also in terms of just feeling healthier, whether you're under the weather or not. Can you share a little bit about how people you sell to use your honey and
3: Well, sure. A lot of people will use it in sort of medicinal purposes as well as a nice sweet treat. Honey is naturally antibiotic, so it not only soothes your throat when you have a sore throat or a cough, but it actually helps cure the infection. As your body breaks down the honey, there's a little bit of antibiotic property that's released, so it actually helps kill the infection. A lot of people swear by it in terms of helping their allergies. What I've read about that is that it's, it's the kind of thing where you have to eat a little bit of honey, every day in advance of and during the allergy season, it's not like taking an antihistamine that's going to have an immediate effect, but yeah.
2: And that leads us to something else, which is that um, local honey is usually processed differently than the national big brand commercial honey. Can you talk a little bit about the packing of the honey?
3: Sure. Well, we process it as little as possible, but we use mostly cold processes when we process our honey. So we remove the cappings from the comb, use a a centrifuge type of device that spins the honey out of the combs. We then cold strain it and then package it in containers. Low processed honey will granulate, in the container however you're storing it eventually. We will warm our honey gradually and slowly in a controlled way so that it keeps it under a certain temperature when it granulates in the containers we store it in and then and then package it. Heating to a really high temperature and or pressure filtering the honey will remove some of the distinct flavors of the honey and compromise the nutritional value to some extent. So that's why we try to process it as minimally as possible. Yeah.
0: Okay. You know what? We're going to come back to talking about the other products that you do, Dick Honor of Red Barn Honey Company. Right now we're going to taste your honey because right. I'm, I'm selfish and I want to eat honey. All right. Well, let's do it like
3: wine. We'll taste the light honey first. <laughs> so we produce two seasonal varietals. The light honey that you see here is a spring wildflower is what we call it. So the bees are producing it in the spring in May and, and June. The other honey is a late summer honey we call it summer wildflower and the bees are producing that late august through september so let's try the light honey first let's try to do this without getting it all over your equipment here
2: I get to use oh. a- adjectives I don't use normally during everyday life. Yeah,
3: well, I want to hear your folks' descriptions and see if it matches what I tell my customers.
0: It tastes a little
3: green, like early spring flowers. It tastes like apple blossoms. The kinds of blossoms that bees like to forage on in the spring begin with dandelions and fruit bloom. Then there's black locust, sumac, clover, basswood. A very general rule with honey is darker honeys tend to have a deeper, more robust flavor. Mm but that doesn't tell the whole story. So it's a little bit like maple syrup, right? Darker maple syrup is a little more robust. (laughs) I love maple syrup too, but to me, maple all tastes like maple. It's either lighter or more robust kind of flavor. Darker honeys can vary quite a bit. It's all has to do with the plant source, right? Different plants produce different honeys, different things blooming around here in May and June than there is in August and September. All right, so let's try the dark honey i'm shocked we haven't gotten it all over the table
0: you'll ruin the magic oh
3: i already know that phil likes prefers dark honey
0: i do too actually
2: i mean there's just uh, a deeper resonance with the darker for me. I, and I really like the lighter honey too. Um, and there were more notes in that lighter honey than I thought, depending on what part of my mouth was tasting it. But the darker one just is more like a hum
0: The me. darker one tastes like wine and blueberries.
2: There's a richness to it in
0: no small part because it's got some of those like extra fruiting things that like darker flowers
3: in the summer. So there are some dark honeys. Some of my customers will ask for buckwheat honey, oh. which is very... Robust. It's kind of earthy and pungent, Uh, frankly. It's personally not my favorite honey, but some people really, really look for it. To me, it's the kind of honey that if you cook with, make a honey cake or something like that, it'd be really nice. But But it's it's
0: very, very strong. It's because it tastes like grain already. Honey really does taste like the stuff that it was pulled from. So buckwheat honey tastes like earth and grain to me when I have it. So that makes a lot of sense. Honey's not all that you do, and not combs either. You also sell beeswax. Beeswax is is a product that
3: we produce. It's a byproduct of producing the liquid honey. So you end up with these cappings that's mixed in with a little bit of honey, the stuff that the bees use in the hive called propolis, a few dead bees here and there, that kind of thing. So you, it's a bit of work, but you render the wax, which is essentially putting it in boiling water so that all these things kind of separate and then tapping off the clean wax and then sometimes melting it again and straining it and making candles. So that's been a nice kind of value-added product for us at our retail sales outlets, which are farmer's markets. Mm-hmm. Right now we're at the Northampton Winter Farmer's Market, which is every other week at the Senior Center in Northampton. And then we sell at the Tuesday Market in in Northampton during the spring, summer, and fall, both of which are managed by Grow Food Northampton. So anyway, that's been a nice product that we've added to our array of things that we offer to people it's a it's a clean burning candle compared to paraffin which is a petroleum product and it's and it's beautiful smelling
2: so for climate change this holiday season get your bee candles there you go
0: yeah we're talking with dick connor of red barn honey company in northampton you mentioned propolis yeah. it's another thing that you sell but what is propolis what do you use it for so propolis is
3: a substance that the bees create by gathering resin from the buds of certain types of plants. They mix that with a little bit of wax and it produces this resinous, sticky substance. It's sticky when it's warm, when it when it gets very cold, it gets very brittle and hard. And the antibiotic properties of that are even higher than the honey itself. So when a honeybee colony swarms and takes up a new residence, okay, that's how honeybee colonies reproduce: is casting a swarm. When they take up residence in a new space, a hollow tree or something like that, the first thing they do is coat the inside of it with propolis. It's sort of like disinfecting the space that they're going to use for their home bees will fill all the cracks and all the empty spaces in the hive with propolis that they're not filling with wax and using for space themselves to move around. So you end up with a lot of this stuff on your equipment, which (laughs) once in a while it's helpful to clean off just so that you can reuse the equipment. So we will sell that to some of the herbalists in the area that are using that and some of the products that they produce and then sell to folks. Yeah. I am curious
0: about swarming now. <laughs> it's a scary word, right? Swarm. <laughs> a swarm usually, of bees. Swarm usually when people mention swarms and they're yeah. not beekeepers, there's like running involved and right. often stings and bad decisions. So,
3: so swarming is swarming's an interesting phenomena, but beekeepers will often refer to the colony of bees as a superorganism, right? Because they're social insects. They work in a cooperative manner in the hive. So so their way of reproducing this superorganism, col- creating new colonies of bees, is to swarm. So that's really their goal in the spring, the bees, is, which is, is to build up their colony to a larger size and cast off a swarm, meaning that the mated queen leaves with a number of young worker bees, finds a new residence to start a new colony, and they leave behind some queen cells that then hatch. One of them hatches and kills her sisters and goes <laughs> on, stings all the the other um queen cells in the colony. Um, Then she goes out and mates on mating flights with with drones in the area and continues, perpetuates that original colony. Typically, a swarm is pretty docile. There are always exceptions to these rules that beekeepers have. The one rule with a swarm is, oh, they're not going to sting you. You really don't need a lot of protection. Well, I've gotten stung many (laughs) times by collecting (laughs) swarms, so it does happen. But they're generally not defensive because the swarm no longer has a colony that they're defending. As soon as that swarm leaves the hive and typically they'll hang in a temporary location for either a number of hours or sometimes a number of days until scout bees that they send out find a find a suitable space for a new colony. And so when they're hanging there they they're not defensive. They don't really have a colony that they're defending. They're also very young worker bees and they've engorged with honey when they leave the hive so that they they have some resources with them. So the honeybees have a little bit harder time stinging you because they're they're filled with honey.
0: Uh, we talked a little bit about what bee life is like in the winter, but for you who are who are harvesting their product, what is winter like for you outside of the farmers' markets that we can see you at? Yeah, well, winter you're tired because <laughs> it's been a long season. Um, <laughs>
3: and still sell at farmers markets so there are either weekly or every other week sales we sell to a few other local stores in northampton river valley market in east hampton we sell a lot to the farms where we keep bees so i try to prioritize that because we have this mutual relationship with the farmers so we sell honey as we mentioned at park hill orchard crimson and clover farm red fire farm this is the time of year when beekeepers will be making their purchases of bees for next season. We spend a lot of time cleaning and repairing equipment both the equipment that we use to extract honey we'll do repairs on that yeah october is very busy because mm-hmm. we're trying to do final management tasks before winter and we're harvesting honey so harvesting means not only bringing the honey into our shop but then getting it out of the
2: combs so i'm curious Dick, you're actually doing both you're selling wholesale and then you're standing there at a farmer's market for four hours What inspires that on your part?
3: Well, I like being at farmers markets because I get to interact directly with the customers. So anytime anybody buys something directly from a farmer, that's to the greatest benefit of the farmer.
2: And the markets you're at all accommodate households who are using SNAP.
3: That's correct. You know, it's, it's enabled us to
0: establish a brand identity, I think. Thanks so much, Dick Hunter of Red Barn Honey Company in Northampton, and Phil Corman from CESA, the local food folks. You can find out more about all of our local heroes at buylocalfood.org. Sure, glad to be here. Thanks. (laughs)
1: Later in the show, some of the folks behind Self-Evident Education's Power of Truth, Cinematic Chronicles of Racism and Resistance, screening in Northampton tomorrow night.
0: And now we Pizza Quest once again as Volume 7 tests the slices at Berkshire Mountain Pizza Cafe and Bakery in Pittsfield.
1: Eaten in the backseat of my minivan with a baby.
0: <laughs> You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 p.m. No, that is not euphemism.
2: The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com.
1: We love to come and drink wine at Dare Bottle Shop and Provisions in Lenox, but it's Pizza Quest time. And Mary Dare, uh, you have some background information on the place. We're about to go eat pizza.
4: We do, indeed. So you guys are headed to Berkshire Mountain Bakery's Cafe in Pittsfield, where the crust is made by Richard who's the gentleman you know the genius behind the brand of Berkshire Mountain bread so sourdough king essentially where you're headed in Pittsfield though there's an amazing female chef or Whitman who runs the cafe and so she's putting out soups and sandwiches and all of her amazing menu items and so she crafts all the toppings onto the pizzas so she works with his base and she works her pizza magic her team works her pizza magic in the kitchen so it's really the combining of two really great culinary forces.
1: Ooh, nice. Oh, nice. Is it yeah. BYOB? Because we could buy a bottle of wine and bring it Oh, I what
4: wish do you mean was... we
0: could? <laughs> what do you mean we could? <laughs> we are.
4: Try. I don't know. I don't know. I think it used to be. I'm not sure if she's doing it anymore. It's
1: always BYOB. We'll
4: find
5: out.
3: <laughs> Peace of <laughs> West.
0: Whoa, Murray Ryan was climbing on the
5: inside. We can do this.
1: Whoa. This we're... is going to be one of the weirder interviews we've ever done. <laughs> It is Pizza Quest. It is our semi-regular attempt to find the greatest pizza in all of the 413. You're in the backseat of my minivan with our director Tony Dunn and his now two-year-old Ryan. Oh, buddy. Do you want to have some pizza?
0: It's
1: It's a chilly day in the Berkshires, and we're in front of Berkshire Mountain Bakery, Pizza, and Cafe.
0: Your car is too advanced.
1: It used to do it on its own. There we go. It
0: does. It does it on its own. Oh, the button is here. Your car is too advanced. I drive a stick still.
1: I wish I did. Mama's Mama's working. Ryan loves pizza cheese pizza and cheese is one of the pizzas we have to get in pizza quest as is mushroom and pepperoni yes and we are eating it in the back seat of my car because berkshire mountain bakery pizza cafe (laughs) used to be a cafe that you could eat at pre-panty but no longer is however it comes highly recommended by mary dare and others i'm going to stop talking in my radio voice which is just an over-enunciated regular (laughs) louder monty voice because i think it's freaking ryan out (laughs) Let's figure out how to dig in. Okay. This car is already a mess because this is where my kids spend We're sorry, of
0: Melissa. Whoa, pizza.
1: Hot. Oh, it is hot. hot. It is very, hot. Very wise, okay, let's, Ryan. Let's very wise. Let's
0: start with the cheese. We'll go we'll go underneath. The first one that popped up was the the pepperoni and mushroom one. But let's go to the cheese because that one I think Ryan is far more interested in participating in and we're all about placating babies right
1: now. Yep. Whoa, that's a nice looking it's a roof of cheese, but it's a roof of what looks like the that's, kind of that's fresh, fresh mozzarella, mozzarella fresh mozzarella, sure. mozzarella Or roof at of least
0: cheese. a drier mozzarella. This is a
1: sourdough crust. So this is, I don't think we've had one in Pizza Quest thus far, have we?
0: I think maybe Magpie is a sourdough crust. Yep.
1: <laughs> Here's some plates that I got from in there.
0: Thank you. I have the rest of the, these plates. Oh yeah, so. Some of
1: them blew away. Ryan
0: just cast aside her uh, binky. That's because pizza's coming. Yeah, pizza she time. knows She knows. She knows what's going on. Yeah. She knows what's up.
1: I read an an article that was on the wall in there that the um, chef who created this went both to CIA and to Cordon Bleu. So this is like a real chef.
0: This pizza has pedigree. Yeah,
1: (laughs) she cooked for Julia Child. Julia Child presents the chicken sisters. Too hot? Dangerous hot? I mean,
0: it's dangerous hot. Okay. Ryan's blowing on it. Mm -hmm. We got to
1: blow on it. This is the worst part waiting, Ryan, right? Show me how you blow on it. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god that was the cutest thing that's happened to be in a long time you've been
0: dying to hang out with this baby for so long i
1: usually only see you on James zoom calls
0: through. thanks director tony hey happy to have her
1: she's, she's a pizza aficionado yeah you can join our regu- you can come to all of our pizza quests ryan what's up ryan you, you want to eat it
0: yeah
1: yeah, me too. well let Calise burn herself first. And then we'll...
0: No, these are cooled off pieces of cheese. You can eat the cheese. All right, whole... I'm
1: going to do, do that.
0: That's what I'm doing. Cheese is quality.
1: Yeah, I like the cheese a lot.
0: It looks like it's more Neapolitan style where we're getting a little bit of the flop, but the crust itself, like towards the edge, has a lot of structure, which is cool. There is. The sauce is nice.
1: Not so, so much leoparding on the back, yeah. on the bottom of the pizza, so it doesn't have the char marks, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's a very thin crust, yeah. almost cracker-like. Mm-hmm. oh yeah look at sh- somebody's a fan
0: there's more structure in the bite than there is in the whole thing yeah that's tasty that's wicked tasty the sauce is really nice
1: mm-hmm. subtle not too much oregano or anything
0: nope but really intensely tomato-y which is good and if you're into poles this pulls
1: elaborate like a cheese full like a classic like the cheese pulls like a string
5: cheese thing
0: if you're into into that being a part of your pizza this cheese pulls this is really good i don't see why your wife doesn't think this is real pizza <laughs> my wife has very
3: specific rules and is an aficionado of new york style pizza and anything outside of that does not exist in her world
0: outside of the thinness of the crust this is pretty far from standard new york style pizza but like on flavor and pizza points this gets real high marks like this is real good what do you think Ryan is it yummy it's so yummy
1: ryan thinks it's yummy mhm me
0: too we got
1: to move to the other pizza pizza quest has two rules one is cheese and the other is pepperoni and mushroom. I guess those aren't rules. Those are pies.
0: These are uh, our pies. controls. It's control. an
1: experiment. Right, it's a scientific experiment, so you need a control.
0: It's like trying everybody's vanilla. You need to know what the base ice cream tastes like before you start adding things on top of it to know if they're hiding things or like if their base has good quality. So like we do cheese, and oh, then we those, do two toppings that. that are kind of standard. One is contentious, but we like it, so we're going with it. Fresh mushrooms, by the way
1: not canned mushrooms not it canned appears mushrooms. pepperoni not really cupping although a couple of evidences of some cupped pepperonis around mm-hmm. the edges
0: but with the type of cheese and the way that it melts on this that makes a lot of sense yeah
1: what do you think ryan
0: yeah
1: do you like pepperoni ryan yeah, me too my one critique so far is not easy to eat with one hand in the back seat of a minivan in a strip <laughs> mall parking lot in pittsfield
0: But I would say those are extenuating circumstances (laughs) for any pizza quest. Like, if we had done this with any... This is the
1: new control. They're all going to be eaten in the backseat of this car, no matter what the weather.
0: You know what? I'm for it. On the topping pizza, we're not getting as much of that crunch, as much of that structure to the crust as we were with the cheese. Still good. Like, the toppings are good. Honestly, they seem kind of unnecessary. I know.
1: I actually like the cheese better myself.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I like the cheese better. I don't think I've ever had a pizza pull this
1: much. When I was a kid, I'd get extra cheese on a pizza, and then that would definitely do
0: it. Mm -hmm. But this is basic, and it's just sort of like, it is almost cartoonish, how this cheese pulls. (laughs)
1: Here's your mushroom,
0: Ryan. Did you like it? Does it taste good? It's a very good pie, but I don't think it needs any, it needs no decoration, which I don't think has been true of almost any other pie we've had. Like it's better in its basic form.
1: Khalees, Ryan is trying to show you her mushroom.
0: Oh, show me your mushroom. <sighs> that's a cool mushroom.
1: Ryan, what's your vote? Which pizza do you like best? The cheese or the pepperoni one? Pony. Roni, Ryan Boat's Roni.
0: I'm not done with this slice, I'm trying to... I'm not done with this slice, and I'm trying to judge already. Where do you feel like this falls? Oh, nice. In the wide array of things that we've tasted.
1: I still think Magpie is the winner of the places we've been. With a close second, also in the Berkshires, Boema. There's Joe's, which is great in Northampton in its own way.
0: It is its own thing.
1: This pizza is in a different category than Joe's, but doesn't quite transcend the heights of Magpie. I think it may be somewhere in between or near Boema. I think it at least pairs with Boema. So maybe tied for second right now. The two Berkshire pizzas tied for second? Yeah, I think so. And Franklin in first. So far, no Hampshire or Hamden County in the the top tier.
0: Well, also, we've only tried one Hampshire County place. That's true. Joe's wins Hall
1: of Fame status for reasons that include how good the pizza is. No slack there, but I'm definitely having another pepperoni and mushroom, even though I said the cheese is better. It's also the one on top as we, we, we just, four human beings or three human beings and a, a half human being are crammed in the back seat of my minivan.
0: And again, like I don't think I've ever had cheese poles like I'm having on this pizza like ever, ever before in my life. Police loves love the cheese poles. It's, it's like it's a it's new like- Olympic event. <laughs> novel thing for me. It's just sort of like, oh wow, cheese does actually do this thing that Mm -hmm. I've seen people draw. The pull! The pull is too strong! (laughs) What's up, sweetie? The gravitational force of cheese.
1: Grabbing life by the reins. Berkshire Mountain Bakery Pizza and Cafe. Pitchfield.
0: But don't forget you have to take it home. (laughs) Don't be like us and eat in your car unless you want (laughs) to. Your windows are all fogged up.
1: I know. Everybody's going to wonder what we're doing in here.
0: They're it's drugs because we're right outside the dispensary. <laughs> as long as they didn't see the baby coming here. Oh, yeah, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> you can also check out Berkshire Mountain Pizza Cafe and Bakery for yourself in Pittsfield. I can vouch for their take-home pizza crust, also.
1: If you've got a suggestion as to where the best pizza in the 413 is, we would love to hear about it and talk about it. You can email us at thefab413.
0: At NEPM.org. We'll put it in the chart. It's all scientific and everything. Time to talk with Michael Lawrence Rittel and Khalif Neville, both involved with self-evident education's film, The Power of Truth, cinematic chronicles of racism and resistance. Screening tomorrow at Smith College in Northampton. They're
1: coming up next. You're listening to the fabulous 413 on 885 NEPM. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to The Fabulous 413, I'm Khalees Smith.
1: And I'm Monty Belmonte. Florence Mass-based self-evident education presents the Power of Truths, Cinematic Chronicles of Racism and Resistance, a free film screening and discussion tomorrow, Tuesday, December 5th, from 5.30 to 7 in the Carroll Room at the Smith College Campus Center.
0: The evening will feature the screening of two short documentary films, If You Cross This Boundary We All Die, about Ellen and William Kraft's journey of self-emancipation from Georgia to Boston and beyond, and A Mother's Bond, the story of Catherine Linda, an enslaved woman who was brought to her, brought by her enslavers to Northampton in 1845, where she learned she could obtain her freedom in Massachusetts. Both films were produced by Self-Evident Education.
1: And joining us is Michael Lawrence Riddell, Mr. LR, Executive Director for Self-Evident Education, a digital humanities resource for educators of American history who want to think critically about the role of race and institutional racism throughout U.S. history.
0: We're also joined by Khalif Neville, co-writer, videographer, and the composer for the film If You Cross This Boundary, We All Die. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having us. No
0: problem. Khalif,
1: last time you were here, uh, it was on top of a double-decker bus on Fort Street in the excruciating heat of the summer. So I'm glad that we're in more temperate circumstances yeah. indoors now.
5: It's a little cold for me because I'm from New Orleans, but I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll
1: make it. <laughs> I'm not from New Orleans, and it's cold for me. Although you were uh, helpful in my very first trip to New Orleans. I was texting you on the plane. Yep, I
0: was,
1: I'm glad you did. I hope you I hope you hit the spot. So I, <laughs> I tried to. And, of course, Khalif Neville is from the famous Neville family of New Orleans. Indeed. Yes. Mr. LR. Yes, sir. Michael Lawrence Riddell. Uh, if people aren't familiar with self-evident education, give us a little background of, of where this idea came from.
4: Yeah. So, um, you know, I was a school teacher for 20 years. I taught in public schools. I taught elementary school, middle school, high school. Um, and I became a teacher because I saw the power that education has in the fight against white supremacy and systemic racism, right? I, in high school, I decided I wanted to be a teacher because I wanted to use education as a, as a tool in the battle against systemic racism. Um, and so after 20 years in the classroom, it, it was really clear to me that we were missing a set of resources that could really engage students through storytelling and through multimedia storytelling in the history, right, the power of a story, of a well-told story to bring students, to bring anybody, right, and I use the word students sort of globally, right, we're all students of life, the power of a well-told story to bring people into a critical conversation that they might not have known they were ready for, um, that was the vision that I had and I started building it when I was in the classroom, I saw how powerful these things could be and the types of learning that students could do through this multimedia storytelling uh, of important moments in history. And so I launched Self Evident uh, early 2020. And here we are. We've got a library of 10 documentary films, each one with a huge suite of follow up curriculum resources. Uh, we're working with the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture to produce two films for them. Um, so it's been, you know, it's been a pretty incredible journey so far, and there's a lot
1: ahead of us. Tell us about your work with the Smithsonian. I, you were I hinting about that uh, uh, when you were coming into the studio that you have some, some deadlines Wait. up ahead. So will this be part of self-evident education, or is this for the Smithsonian Museum and we'll see them there?
4: So so it will be part of their um, their digital platform, which is called North Star... Um, a, a digital journey through of some preposition, African-American <laughs> history. Um, <clears throat> I got all the rest of it right. Uh, you know, so so they reached out to us. They were familiar. They became, you know, they, they saw some of our work and they wanted us to produce some films for their platform. Um, so we're producing it for their platform. And then, you know, as we work together, the the sort of, logistics of where it will all live and, and for how long we'll, we'll work that out. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we're producing it for the digital platform uh, and, and it should be up next year is, is the goal. Very cool. Early next year, yeah.
0: Are they using really any exciting. of your current material for exhibits that they have?
4: They do not. Uh, they have not used any of our material yet, but that's sort of the hope is that through this partnership, we can we can show them how, how powerful our resources are and also suggest to them a couple of different ways that, that they could use them on their digital platform. And then in the museum itself uh, is the ultimate goal. Mm. We're not there yet,
1: but so, we'll get there. Two more films from Self-Evident Education debut. Is this tomorrow their debut at at Smith College? Uh, the,
4: this is not their their debut, um, but they have not been shown publicly very often. Okay, right? so so if you cross this boundary, we all die. Debuted at, at last year's uh, or last. Spring, Spring, summer, yeah, I don't yeah. Because we were Spring, talking with right. you with
0: acrobatic about it. Yeah,
4: exactly. So it debuted there. Um, we showed it this past week in Nashville at the Nashville Public Library, and so this is the launch of a program that we're going to do in conjunction with Mass Humanities and then other partners in other states where we'll do film screenings at at libraries and then with other um, local partners like for this one Historic Northampton. The Smith College Department of History Um, in Tennessee, it was the Nashville Public Library and Humanities, Tennessee. Um, So, yeah, this is this is the launch of this type of programming that we're going to do at public libraries. And part of it came out of thinking about, you know, in, in some of these places that have passed laws that have have scared teachers into thinking that they can't talk about certain things in their classrooms. Um, libraries and other public spaces do not have to abide by those same laws and regulations, right? And so we're thinking about how do we get these resources in front of people in places that have active movements to keep these resources away
1: from people. That's Michael Lawrence Riddell, the executive director for Self-Evident Education, based in Florence and tomorrow evening 530 to 7 in the Cowell Room at Smith College, The Power of Truth's Cinematic Chronicles of Racism and Resistance. One of the films is we've mentioned before it's called if you cross this boundary we all die and that was co-written filmed color corrected and composed (laughs) by khalif neville tell us about uh coming across this story and your involvement in the creation of this film
5: yeah it was uh it was like a dream come true as a story brief because it is basically an action movie plot but it actually happened and like (laughs) uh, when i like grasped that i was like wow this is like not only is it really cool from a narrative standpoint and like with the score that allowed me to stretch out and do some really interesting things But also, like people need to hear about this because, like, it literally is an action movie that actually happened, So
0: I feel like that's the case with a lot of, like, like Black History of about that time. Though, when you hear about what these people did to either get free or to help other people, it sounds like like a crazy blockbuster. Think
1: of how long it took to make the Harriet Tubman movie. I mean, that story's just been waiting. The fact fact that Robert
0: Smalls does not have a movie yet, still, (laughs) still, that man stole a
1: whole boat. We could call it Smalls is the. Ellis <laughs> <laughs> Khalif Neville, though, tell us about the action heroes that were actually from history in the movie that you helped to write.
5: Yeah, I mean, helped to write is like technically true, but I came in like later. So okay. I say I helped like Shake. make sure that what this other stuff I was doing like would fit in it. But I don't want to take too much credit because okay, these good. these guys, they really I mean, like even this backstory for how this all started with with Peggy, I don't know if we have time to go into that, but that's like such a cool story. That's the descendant of the folks William and Ellen Craft, about we, Who we, we were, were hoping
1: to have on, but had to have cancel at the last minute, unfortunately, yes, sadly. Yes, sadly gotcha. Yes.
5: Yeah. Yeah. She, that like even that backstory to how you got the opportunity to start the project is uh, talking to uh, Michael is is so cool and like her being involved in the the production was, that was one of the coolest moments of making it was, um, remote directing some filmmakers in L.A., which is where Miss Peggy, who is the descendant of the folks of who the story's about where she lives, I was like, I, we rented them some gear and like shipped it to them. And then I was like on Zoom trying to be like, yo, put put the light here. No, move, move it a little bit. Okay, is the audio rolling? Like it was, I like had never thought that's something I'd have to do, but it it worked. It came out really good. And it was just... I feel like that really bring brought the whole story together that there's still this that the theme that these people fought for which was to to escape slavery so they could have a family outside of it that Peggy is the embodiment of that and it kind of just justifies and like make made it all make sense and that was across all the things I did it was just so cool that it was real and like the music you know, a lot of times making a score is like fantastical. I love John Williams as we talk about often. <laughs> yes, yeah. you know. Neville, the of
1: Neville Brothers fame's favorite musician is John Williams, I and I think that's says John so <laughs> much. I mean, come on, who doesn't love John yeah, Williams? I, mean, I tried it's... to invite him to Tanglewood because we almost got to meet John Williams, but so sure. it didn't next happen. Time. <laughs> next time, next, next time. time, next
5: time. But you know, those are Star Wars is great. It is fantastical, and like that diffuses the. Uh, I don't know, like, the the way you have to consider what the score means a little bit because it is fantasy, whereas this, like, it needed that same drama, but it's real. Mm. And, like, that... Like the the title, if you cross this boundary, we all die, is taken from what was the kind of the cold open and our central scene where the slave catchers have found where William and Ellen are in Boston, stand with this absolute savage man who, like, <laughs> yeah. who the reason it's titled this is he had apparently dynamite. Under the like entryway of his house, and when the slave catchers came, he was like, "Yo, you walk in here, I'm blowing us, I'm blowing the whole block up." And I'm just like, "What? <laughs> <laughs> this happened? And this How is did the, you get this dynamite? Like, yeah. what is going
1: on?" This is, is in no the time frame it, of and... the Fugitive Slave Act. It's just yes. been passed. This mm-hmm. woman has was born of a, she of a, essentially a rape uh, to her s- slave mother, and then marries a man. And they escaped north right. and she she pretends that th- the man that she has married to is her slave and gets her all the way up from uh, where she's left in Georgia, I think, to uh, to yes. Boston. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, she it, it, you know, it it just exposes
4: some of the ridiculousness of the social constructs that have been created in our culture. Right. So phenotypically, she looks white. Mm-hmm. Right. And she puts on a man's clothes and pretends to be not only uh, white but a white man and a disabled white man right and so i think also you know at play in this story is this sort of aversion that our culture has to disabilities mm-hmm. right where where she can they're kind of they're going to kind of look the other way because they don't want to be around this you know disabled person or and and also the construct of of gender right she just puts on some pants and a hat and they're like, oh, that's a dude, you know, (laughs) like, uh, so, so it's, we've got race, we've got gender, we've got disability all at play there. And they get to Boston and Lewis Hayden and his wife, Harriet Hayden, you know, are like, we will protect you with our lives. Mm -hmm. We will protect you. And so many instances like that happen. One of the films we're doing for the Smithsonian is about a similar moment called the Christiana resistance, where people go to these extreme lengths to maintain their their freedom, right? And I think that that's at that core of, of what we're doing is that, <laughs> that natural inclination of humanity to be free that Jefferson wrote about, you know, in our Declaration of Independence and then lived out completely different ideals, right? But he was right that that, that, that is that natural inclination. It's the natural state of humanity is to strive for liberty. Um, he just... Put a whole bunch of roadblocks in a lot of people's way towards liberty.
1: We're speaking with Michael Lawrence Rudell, the executive director for Self Evident Education based in Florence, and Khalif Neville, the filmmaker and composer behind the movie If You Cross This Boundary, We All Die. There's another movie that'll be screening tomorrow as well, but we'll take a little break and talk about that on the other side.
0: You're listening to the Fabulous 413 on 885 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. Our guests are from Self-Evident Education, who are presenting The Power of Truth, Cinematic Chronicles of Racism and Resistance, a free film screening that and discussion. <laughs> Tomorrow, Tuesday, December 5th, from 530 to 7 p.m. at the Carol Room at Smith College's Campus Center. Let's talk about the second film on this bill.
4: Yeah, so the second film is called A Mother's Bond, um, and when you watch the film, you'll understand the sort of multitude of, of meanings of that title. Um, it's about a woman named Catherine Linda um, who was enslaved in Savannah, Georgia, in 1845. And one of the things that I had never really thought about or done too much research too much research on um, was what happened when enslavers traveled within the United States, right? So so they had a lot of connections between the South and the North, right? They'd gone to school with people. They were friends with these people. They had business in the North. The textile industry, right, is totally dependent on Southern cotton. Um, and so one of the things that I learned uh, more about that would happen is enslavers would travel to the North during the, the summer months when it was incredibly hot and they'd come here to do business and, and have personal connections. And they would bring enslaved people with them to be able to live the lifestyle that they lived when they were in the South, in the North, right? So there were these moments when slavery was happening in the North, even though we, you know, it was, it was abolished and we sort of envisioned those two things as totally separate. So that was happening. And then the other thing that they would do is they would bring people with them for whom they had hostages back in the South, right? Because they were nervous. People would get north. They would run. Um, so if they had people back home that they could hold as hostages, they would more than likely go home. So all of that comes to play in in this film, um, A Mother's Bond. We we made it based on research that was done by Historic Northampton, phenomenal research that they did into the the, the case of Catherine Linda, a woman who you know most people hear nothing about. Um, and and one of the other characters in it uh, is a guy named. Um, D.W. Ruggles and she she meets D.W. Ruggles, who named himself after David Ruggles because David Ruggles helped him get free. Right. So he names himself in an honor of this man who helps him free himself. David Ruggles also helped Frederick Douglass get free. He was David. David Ruggles is a is a monster. And too. go visit the David Ruggles yeah. Center in Indeed. Florence. Florence. Wonderful yep. historical treasure there. 225 Nonatuck Street. Um, <laughs> uh, open on sundays usually for open houses um so you know uh dw ruggles meets Catherine linda actually here in springfield so they come to springfield first and there's a place called warner's tavern which is a a stop on the underground railroad she meets dw ruggles he's like you could get free if you want and she's like yeah i want that uh and and her enslaver hears about this and brings her to northampton where he tries to hide her she gets in front of a judge uh, and then you'll have to come see
1: the film uh, to figure out what happens next. <laughs> but when people decided not to free themselves from slavery with this kind of opportunity, then the South would say, see, right. They, yes. they don't mind. See, they're yeah. happy. Here. They're right. happy. Right. They chose. But really, they, chose they had a hostage at home that they, right. they couldn't bear to, to say farewell to. Right.
0: Right. <laughs> Both of these films have Massachusetts connections. Yes, uh, was that part of your your grant from Mass Humanities? Are you intending to focus on on stories that land here?
4: Yeah, great question. So the um, if you cross this boundary, we all die. That one was funded by Mass Humanities through the Expand Mass Stories grant, um, and and so that one specifically, you know, was about a Massachusetts story, and we wanted to focus on that connection. Um, the Catherine Linda one, I read about her her case um, in in the newspaper when Historic Northampton did the work, and we actually produced that one in conjunction with uh, the Northampton Education Foundation, and then students in the Northampton Public Schools who served as like our script interns. I could talk about that. I usually cry when I do because it's <laughs> such it's such an inspiring story. But we can't get into that today. Um, and so most of our stories are are, are meant to be. This sort of zoom in on one moment, movement, event, person or situation that then helps us to zoom out and look for the systemic patterns and and what this says about sort of what's happening nationwide. Um, And so it's sort of the same model wherever we are. We've done ones about, you know, Elaine, Arkansas, Chicago, uh, Tulsa and the race massacre. and all of those, you know, the, the, the trails of tears and the removal of indigenous nations so that cotton could be grown in, in that land, right? It's all connected. Um, so every time we look at one moment, we're trying to expand out and see the patterns, right? Because mm-hmm. individual stories are just anecdotes if we don't look at the patterns. Michael
1: Lawrence-Riddell from Self-Evident Education. If you are an educator listening to this and you would like to learn more and incorporate some of this into your own teaching, where should people go to find out more?
4: You would go to selfevidenteducation.com, which is also where you can go to register for tomorrow night's film
1: screening. Uh, So, again, selfevidenteducation.com. Tuesday, December 5th, tomorrow, 530 to 7 at the Smith College Campus Center at the Carroll Room. Michael Lawrence-Riddell from Self-Evident Education and Khalif Neville, who didn't speak very much during this part of the segment. (laughs) But we are listening to your most recent album called 413 in Roman Numerals where there are different amazing Angelo Badalamente-esque scores that uh, create a sonic landscape to our actual landscape. And I I think it's wonderful to listen to. That's
5: that's the way to listen to it, you know? As immersively as possible.
1: Yes, it's so great. Thank you both so much. Thank you both so much. Oh, no problem. Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, we bid adieu to one of our favorite musical and cultural centers, maybe, as we talk with Vita Kruta and Lori Devine from Gateway City Arts in Holyoke.
0: And we'll continue to make the Yuletide gayer when we talk about the queer winter makers market. I'm Glee Smith. I'm Monty Belmonte. See you tomorrow.